please turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 5, 9. A comment before I read the scripture. I am preaching at a conference on evangelism, overcoming obstacles to evangelism this Saturday. The conference starts Friday night. It's in Newburgh, and there are seven different churches coming together to put on this conference. If you would look at the back of your bulletin, you'd see a graphic that gives you the title for the conference. It says, God gives the increase 2019 conference, Overcoming Obstacles to Evangelism, March 15th and 16th. And there it would tell you about the admission prices and the location in Newburgh, as well as a way to register online. There's also a way to register hard copy at our Welcome Center after church if you want to. It's a one-pager. It essentially revolves around whether or not you have children that need child care. The conference speakers are listed on the backside. Uh, Dave Terrell of Westwood, John DeVito of a church in Newburgh, Derek Head also in Newburgh, Kevin DeVance is in downtown Evansville, Matt Shones from Owensboro, Morgan Flagler is at a church in Newburgh, he's the host church, and then, uh, of course, you, you likely know me by now. Uh, we are talking about evangelism because we think that it's often omitted, and I'll get to my sermon today, which is on that topic. Uh, it's, it's a playoff of words, the Great Commission. If you drop the C, you could say the great omission. Why is oftentimes the great commission, why does it become the great omission? Something we're, we're commanded to do becomes something that we fail to do. And so I'm going to try to talk about that in the brief time that we have this morning. But a couple of quotes along that lines, along, the, along those lines, that I think goes with us is, is listed on the backside of your bulletin. Evangelism, a simple definition, is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Notice that it doesn't list any kind of results. You don't have to get results to have effectively evangelized. God calls us to share the gospel with the aim to persuade, and then God gives the increase. God does the work on the human heart. And so we are to be faithful is what our call is to be. Uh, and the other thing that I have there that I think really fits in nicely, quoting from Max Stiles' book titled Evangelism, um, and I have a copy of it here. I'm going to hold it up because I want to commend it to you. It's one of these little, little books in the Nine Mark series. It's titled Evangelism by Max Stiles. And Max, a pastor in the UAB, but he is, um, Mac has written a nice little work on evangelism, and he gives this quote as well. Much of the problem with evangelism is that we don't have a big enough view of the church. I think that's really helpful. Most of our problems with evangelism is that we don't have a big enough view of the church. I believe that God loves the world and has a wonderful plan for evangelism his church. And so with a working definition of evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, then much of our problem with evangelism, we don't have a big enough view of the church, sort of twins together what I want to talk about this morning is how our understanding of the church impacts our evangelism and moves us from the great omission back into the great commission. That's, that's my working point this morning. It's part of what I'm, I'm working on for Saturday as well is an expansion upon what we're talking about this morning, but I just wanted to kind of give you an announcement this morning from my heart about 
If you don't, if you're not already going to the women's conference on Saturday, I know some of you are going to seminar Saturday. Praise God. I know some of you have family obligations. I realize Friday nights and Saturdays they're, they're, they get full really quick. But also, there may be a handful of you out there that, that God wants you to do this, and you just need a little nudge. So consider this your nudge. If you, if you don't just want to go online and register yourself, or if finances are an issue, because that, none of the pastors wants it to be an issue, uh, if any of that is the case, uh, either see me or make a note on the bulletin, circle there. I'd like to register, attend the conference this weekend, and we will do our best to help you to get there and to to be able to benefit from teaching on this important subject that will be more broad than what I'm even able to introduce to you this morning, uh, and I believe very helpful. They're also trying to provide a meal on Saturday and whatnot and try to build some fellowship. So it's a rare thing for churches in one geographic area to come together for a teaching conference like this. It doesn't happen all the time. It happens nationally, but not locally and regionally. So we're very excited about things like this and the Main Street Revival that we've worked on for the fall. We believe these are important things for our congregation so that you meet other like-minded believers and can interact with folks enter church. So uh, at the bottom there, finally, it says advanced registration requested. You may register online or at our Welcome Center today. Your registration will include three books, so resources, a program guide, child care, and a lunch on Saturday with a group if desired. So that's the back side of the bulletin. And Without further ado, I would like to read to you one of the text selections for this morning. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. And here's what it says. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you." And that is our reading for this morning. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. I want to share with you a quote that I brought to the pulpit with me. It's a quote by the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, a remarkable preacher of the gospel and a committed evangelist. And here's what he wrote. He said, to expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. Now listen again to what the late Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He said, to expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. The appeals of the gospel in terms of conduct and ethics and morality are always based on the assumption that the people to whom the injunctions are addressed are Christian. So the quote is so powerful and so easy to misunderstand. I want to read it again. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, made this point. To expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. We should not expect a person that has not been gospelly converted, converted by the power of the gospel, has not been born again. We should not expect that person to imbibe or reflect Christian conduct. To expect a person who is not born again to act Christianly he declares, is heresy. The appeals of the gospel in terms of conduct and ethics and morals 
are always based on the assumption that the people to whom the injunctions are addressed from the Bible are Christian. Now, what I want to point out this morning is that on the marrow, on the, on the main point there, that we can be in agreement before we go any further. Is it reasonable, based on your understanding of Scripture, Christians, that we should not expect non-Christians to conduct themselves in a Christian manner? Is that reasonable? I don't hear any dissent. I rarely ask for dissent from the pulpit, but I'd like to not hear any dissent on that. It's unreasonable to expect non-believers to act in a Christian, consistent manner. Any of that that we get is just... It's just common grace. God has just somehow not let evil be as, as upending as it could be. Everybody, they're not as bad as they could be. Uh, they are restrained in some way according to the common grace of God. But it should, we should not expect that that is from the heart, Christian conduct. Now, we agree on that. Now, what about this? To expect Christian conduct from a person who is born again, should we? I think the answer to that is yes. Just as much as we should not expect Christian conduct from a person that is not born again, we should expect basic Christian conduct from a person that is born again. Is that fair enough? And that's the two things that I want to talk about this morning. And I thought, I thought that Martin Lloyd-Jones really teed it up for me the best by, by offering that quote. He was such a remarkable preacher in England in the 20th century, to expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again, that that's not, shouldn't be expected, but to expect Christian conduct from a person that is born again, that's exactly what the Bible is imploring us uh, to. So we should nurture a willingness to share the gospel or evangelize, that's what it means, to aim to persuade by teaching the gospel to people. We should nurture a willingness to do that both in a way that holds the church believer or the member to a high standard of Christian conduct and in a way that does not expect that Christian conduct from a person that's not born again or, to use the language of 1 Corinthians, an outsider. And so I want to offer these couple of points this morning in the balance of our time if you're following along with how we're going to understand 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. It's that there is a correlation between these two things. The first one, that we should rightly and lovingly judge the insider membership with biblical aptness and have the courage to engage our membership in spiritual things. And then secondly, that we should have the courage not to judge the outside world with that same biblical aptness and expectation. Do you understand the two things? Okay. Well, then let's get into it if you, if you do understand the two things this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is how we're going to make the great omission, the great commission. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, at least I think, is my operating hope. I hope to interact with you on this after we've heard clearly from God's Word. So he says this in verses 9 through 11. He says, I wrote to you in my letter... Apostle Paul wrote formerly in a former letter that is not extant. We don't have it. He wrote to them not to associate. Not to associate. That word not to associate is a contract word that comes to us 
It means not to mix, mingle together, or to associate. Not to mix together, not to associate. So he says here, he gives us the non. He gives us our first point to judge the insider membership differently than our second point of not judging the outside. And he says here, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, I didn't mean at all the sexually immoral of this world. Now, I want to clarify something right here in this. this, These three verses are going to constitute our first point. And I need to clarify it because it's a topic of conversation today in the churches. This, This is not a comment that is going to be made with pride. It's also not a comment that's going to, it's not, it's not going to be the easy comment to make either. But it is the, it's what I believe needs to be said, and it's based on this verse clearly of our exposition today, and it's this. There is a fairly well-known preacher that within the last month has preached a sermon where he says that God whispers about sexual immorality in his word. And that dear brother is wrong. He's absolutely wrong. The Bible does not whisper about sexual immorality. Do you see the leading description in this verse? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. The Bible doesn't whisper about it. When Jesus talks about marriage and divorce, the one qualification that could even possibly be in the exception clause that he gives in the Gospels, do you know what it is related to? Sexual immorality. It was not so in the beginning. When we read through the letters to the churches, when we read about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, do you know what headlines and gets repeated in the works of the flesh? Sexual immorality, sensuality, impurity. When we read in the book of Revelation about Babylon, she is described in such terms with regard to sexual immorality that I won't even repeat it without the children being out of the room. The sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says right here in chapter 6, the Bible does not whisper about sexual immorality. It shouts about it. And we must whisper where the Bible whispers, and we must shout where the Bible shouts. Friends, sexual immorality is it presents a quagmire to our younger believers like none other. In fact, the word in Greek that comes to us translated here as sexual immorality and is translated that way coming from Greek in the other verses that I cited orally in the last five minutes. It is literally a word that comes into our English language as a word. It's porneia, where we get pornography. So you don't even have to know Greek to know the origins of the word. Porneia is the problem. Sexual immorality is ransacking our churches. And I don't have all the solutions in terms of this program and that program. I'm just appealing to your will through the power of the gospel. I'm saying repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you are caught in a pornographic cycle, a fornication cycle, a sexual immorality cycle, an adulterous cycle, this is the day of salvation. Repent of it. Repent of it. Put it aside. Find a help. Get help. We want to help you. But we, what we cannot do is in any way go along with the concept that the Bible whispers about these things. That may tickle the itching ears of the hearers 
and of nominal Christians in our day, but that is not the warp and woof of the holy canon of Scripture. Amen? It's important. And if you're new with us, this is not to say that we don't have people that have struggled or struggle with sexual immorality. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is, is that to be a member of the body of Christ, what we cannot be is known, consistent, unrepentant, sexually immoral people. Like you can't be a known person, like the, like the person on, on over there on that street is known to have an adulterous relationship with the person on this street. And it's characteristic and that person is a brother, a member of the body of Christ, and you've gone to that person, and you've gone to that person, and that person will not repent, you can't just let that lie. It can't just be Amish kind of shunning, like, well, I think that person's not right, but I'm not going to say anything. The Bible clearly gives us a command that that is not an acceptable way of going about dealing with that. That person has to be publicly rebuked by the full weight of the church. You're rebuked for that sin. That is that is unacceptable because is so it's such a big it's such a big issue is sexual immorality that we have to talk about and it's it's not that it is the only sin that is listed that has to be considered whenever we're thinking about characteristic and known unrepentant sin in a professing christian member of a church's life but it is the headline after that, of course, greed and idolatry, reviling, drunkard, swindlard. What he's saying is, is if a person is guilty of this, and by that I think it's from such obvious unrepentant sin that the, the whole church has leaned into this. I think it's like Matthew 18 is assumed when we get to this point in 1 Corinthians 5. I think some people have already gone to this person and prevailed upon this person, and the leaders of the church may have even gotten involved with this person. I think 1 Corinthians 5 is a context where the Apostle Paul is saying to the church, you are frigid about pulling the trigger on excommunioning this person, and you shouldn't be. And I believe that one big reason that we cannot be when it comes to that point is because it affects the, our fulfilling of the Great Commission. I think this text gives us that sense, and other Bible verses does too. And here's how. Here's how I think that it does. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And, and the question would be, well, which ones? And he makes it clear. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He doesn't mean those given to pornea in this world. He means those that are characteristically unrepentant and known to not be even trying to to turn away from their sin, and saying, I'm just as much a member of the church as anybody else, and I will not submit to the authority of Scripture as meted out through God's congregation. That person, there has to be a change in our relational patterns with that person. Not hatefully, but there has to be a sense in which we don't just yuck it up with that person. Like, we just don't just go to dinner and be like that person over on 2nd Street that's all that's happened with. We don't just be like, hey, how you doing, Bill? That's great. Well, how are you, Bill? Great. How's it? I mean, that person, there needs to be a sobriety about the fact that that person has allegedly tasted the things of God in a Hebrews 6 fashion and is now rejecting them and will not in any meaningful way submit himself to the covenant of the church. Now, it'd be enough to just say that that's the command of Scripture clearly right here. We just read it, right? But to take it just a little further, it's why. Why is it 
that that relationship necessarily has to change. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to say that there are reasons for that threefold. One of them is that, that the little ones, the leaven doesn't work through the whole lump. That the little ones and the newer people coming, I don't think that they need to think that Bill is, his conduct is okay. Well, Bill's in, so Bill's good. So for one, we have to, it's not just what we say, right? It's also what we do. But we have to have a common conduct that is at least at a high level graded to be in keeping with our covenant. That's, that's one thing. I think another thing is, is it is not loving for that brother, that dear brother, like Alexander and Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20, to be caught up in, in sin and to be unrepentant and, and not to face as much pressure as we can put on that person through the judgment of the church to repent prior to facing the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. I think this is God's means to win that brother back over. In fact, I think 2 Corinthians chapter 4 gives us the latitude to make that interpretation. I'm going to read it to you now. Jumping over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, rather, not 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. And here's what it says. It says, For I wrote to you... It kind of sounds like the verses we read in 1 Corinthians, right? For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, and I think he may well be talking about this characteristically known, unrepentant, sexually immoral man from 1 Corinthians 5, and a lot of scholars think this, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you, to all of you members, to the whole church. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority... It's a congregation leaning into that person and saying, Bill, you may not. You're excommunioned if you won't repent of this. You can't live that life. This could save a family. The church having this kind of courage could save a family. It says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So verse 7, what's going on here? I think the same congregation... The same church that was reticent to be that courageous with disciplining that person is now being reluctant and uncourageous with welcoming that now repentant person back into the body. You see how we can run off the rails on both sides here. It was both loving and courageous to say that person, you cannot, because God says thou shalt not, because the, the Bible doesn't whisper about sexual immorality, it shouts about it. And at the same time, we shout about God's amazing, redeeming grace to bring the brother right back into the fold whenever he cracks and repents and gives it up. Does that make sense? Maybe not right back in, but pretty close. I mean, a little bit of examination of the life. And I think what he's, I think what he's doing here, he says in verse 8, he could be overwhelmed, verse 7, by, by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, it presumes that there was pressure by the majority put on him to begin with. And verse 8 says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Wow. Reaffirm. It never left, did it? We still love you, Bill. We love you so much. This is why I wrote, referencing a previous letter, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So the question remains, are we obedient in everything, even the appropriate biblical aptness for judgment inside the membership? Remember, we're not on our second point. We're not talking about outside the membership. We're talking about inside. And I'm drawing a correlation between those two faithfulnesses between those two willingnesses, those two, those two batches of courage. 
And so he says in verse 9, this is why I wrote that I might know whether you're obedient in everything. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. So this is forgiveness that, that is measured out and saying to that person that is obviously blinded in their sin, you must repent. And we mean it. God means it. It's so important. It's important to the little ones in the church. It's important to you. And he says here in verse number 10 and following through 11, it says, Indeed, I have forgiven anything for has been your sake in the presence of Christ, in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So it's that the enemy wants to make us frigid on the front end of courage to deal rightly and lovingly with Bill through discipline and on the back end of bringing Bill back into the fold and saying, having the courage to say, hey, come on, we love you. I'm glad you've repented. We're not going to shame you and shun you with some kind of honest, Amish social shunning for the next three decades. You're not blacklisted from us. We know we struggle too. The only difference we had right there is we were humble and repentant and seeking guidance and you ran away from it and balled up and wouldn't come to church for a year. Does this make sense? You see the difference? That is what First and Second Corinthians is systematically describing what God's telling us is love. And it's uncommon because it's distasteful, because it's difficult and it's nuanced. And this verse is saying, I want to know whether or not you as a congregation with your corporate witness are obedient in everything. I think that is really important because there is a command that's not just for an individual. It's for us as a body, as members. The punishment of the majority, that's not an individual, is it? 1 Corinthians 5, when the yous are all plural, you shouldn't associate with that brother that way. He bears the name of brother. That's corporate. That's not just individual now, is it? And this is what I think. I think there's a third reason why we have to be willing to prevail upon a known characteristically unrepentant member in such a way as even to excommunion that person for until such a time as he repents. And I think it's for our corporate witness to the world. Well, it's not just for that brother that we want back like Alexander and Hymenaeus. It's not just for all the other members that can't be led to think that there's some condescension between what we say is important and what we actually practice is important in order to be a member in good standing with our church. The little ones need to know we're consistent even with one another. So it's not just for the one and it's not just for the many. I think it's for the outsiders. And that leads me to my second point is the courage to not judge the outside world the same way or possibly in some ways, not even at all, according to these verses, as we do the inside. And now I'm not talking about judgmentalism. I'm talking about shifting through gears when the Greek word krino for judge and all of its synonyms is used so many different ways in the New Testament. Why are they used that way? Why is it going to say in one place in the New Testament, do not judge lest you be judged in the same manner in which you judge, and in another place, make sure that the judgment of the majority is sufficient? Why is it going to say those things? And I think it's because there is a qualitative difference between how we are to interact in the church covenant membership and how we are to interact with those that are clearly not yet wishing to be in it. And so the same courage that it takes for the inside is the courage that it takes for the outside with different applications. And so my first point was how to judge insider, and it's the second point is how to not judge the outsider. So look again at 1 Corinthians 5. 
He says not to associate with this one called brother like this. That's 9, 10, and 11. And he headlines the list with sexual immorality. And chapter 6 doubles down on sexual immorality. That's what we used to be. We're not practicing that now. And 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's still worried about sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. So it's a headliner shoutable issue. It's not a whisperer thing. And then it says this for our second point this morning. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? If this is the Apostle Paul, I'm not an apostle, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but he's speaking to the church at Corinth, one of the earliest churches in the early A.D. 50s, and he's saying to them, what, what do I have to do with this? But then he makes it plural for them as a congregation. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to not judge lest you be judged? It's not what it says, is it? Is it not those inside the church, clearly meaning that there is some way mechanism for knowing who is inside and who is outside, right? Like clearly you can't even, this verse makes no sense if there's not some mechanism for knowing who's inside the church membership and who's outside. And that's why we put the accent there is because the Bible does. And it says here, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? It doesn't say whom you are to be judgmental toward. It doesn't say whom you are to be a hypocrite toward. Well, I'm all high and mighty, and I don't struggle with sexual immorality in the way you do, and so I'm just going to always poke at you. Or I'm going to do this shunning thing in the community where once you've got a mistake that people have found out about, I am going to blacklist you from any kind of meaningful relationship for the rest of our lives, even though we're one in Christ, and as such were some of all of you as sinners, but God has graciously redeemed us. No, that person is to be brought back in as full-fledged, God-honoring members with a testimony that says, but for the grace of God, that's where we would be too. And it says here clearly that we are to be about the business of judging in this way for the good of the brother and the good of the little ones, the inside. But I think also for the good of the outsiders. And why would I say that? I would say it for a biblical reason, biblical theological reason. I'm going to say it for a real practical reason here before I quit today too. And this is why I think it has something to do with our corporate witness to the outsiders. It says again, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And I think it's in this manner that I've systematically laid out in Corinthians, assuming Matthew 18 and so on. Verse 13 now, God judges those outside. God judges. So who judges everybody outside the regenerate church membership? Is it us or is it God? God. Now, of course, God's going to judge us too. But he has delegated a practical authority to the majority, to the members, to the you plural. All these yous are plural, coming from Greek to English. Among yous, us, when you're gathered, assembled together, 1 Corinthians 5 says, whom has he delegated this authority to and commanded to operate in this biblical judgment us as a church and he even says so with this imperative which is is deuteronomy in its sense from the old covenant where they would purge certain evil people from the covenant community it feels like that only in the new covenant we're not putting them necessarily geographically out of the the camp we're putting them membershiply out of the membership we're saying you're not in it until you repent purge it from among you, and then 2 Corinthians 2 does the heavy lifting of how you get that person back in. 
But I don't want to deal with all the semantics of that. I just want to say it's a biblical imperative for some godly good that we might not fully embrace or understand yet that you must have the category to purge the evil person from among you. How many churches in the tri-state have, the, have lost this category? When we lose something that's for the local church that God has ordained and commanded, we lose something important whether we realize it or not. This category of clarifying who is in and out, and especially along the lines of known characteristic unrepentant sexual immorality like this text does, it, it might, might it be not going well with us, I might hypothesize with you, might it be not going well with us in the area of sexual ethics? Might it not be going well because we have eliminated this category from our lexicon of understanding how churches are supposed to operate? Is that possible? You know, I have a buddy that used to say a lot down south, so how's that working out for you, Matt? <laughs> right? Well, you know what he's getting at when he says that. He said, well, that ain't what you wanted now, was it? He said, how's that working out for you, Matt? <laughs> well, how's that working out for us, church? And, we are, and I get it. We are scared to death of the old fundamentalist approach to disciplining a wayward member. We're scared to death of it, so we've just gone to the other extreme and ran off on the other side. We just we won't address anything. But we've lost an important biblical category. And here's what I think. This is kind of my walkaway point. It's not my walkaway application. It's my walkaway point. I don't think it's just for that one, for Bill. And I don't think it's just for the little members. I think it's for our corporate witness. I mentioned a book, read uh, earlier in the sermon. It's by Max Stiles on evangelism. What I didn't tell you is the subtitle to the book. It's how the whole church speaks of Jesus. And what he gets into in this little bitty read is he says, we often talk about personal evangelism, personal witnessing, personal sharing the gospel, and we should. But he said, we often do it to the neglect of understanding our corporate local church witness of the gospel and how important that is. And I think he's on to something. I think he's on to something. I think we have a corporate church witness that preaches something. It shows something to everybody else that considers themselves on the outside. I think, it, I think that we have a witness that says something to them. The question is, are we saying to them, sexual immorality is not commensurate with the kingdom of God? Or are we saying to them, sexual immorality is commensurate with the kingdom of God? If you'd like to become a part of our church, whatever it is that the church does for you, it's not going to change that aspect of your life. So either don't hope for it or don't worry about it because that's not what we're into. What are we saying? And I could do that with any number of other sins. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not going to whisper where the Bible doesn't whisper. I'm going to tell you this is where the accent is in these, in these passages. And I'm going to say sexual immorality is the issue of the day. And so I'm going to bring that up here. And I'm going to say that the church is supposed to be saying, with not just our words, which we seem to be all too quick to do, you bunch of heathens, but with our deeds, we are the purer people. We're pursuing purity. And the Apostle Paul is obsessed with this in First and Second Corinthians. Read the end of Second Corinthians. He's obsessed with it. I fear you still haven't repented of your sexual sin. I'm afraid you still haven't done it. I'm mourning about it, it says in Second Corinthians 12. I'm weeping about the fact that I'm afraid you still have it. I mean, he's not like, he, it's not that the Apostle Paul is saying that that you are hopelessly destitute. He's just trying to shine a light on it and say, this is so important. And I believe because 
It's for the corporate witness of the church, how the whole church speaks of Jesus, not just in word, but in deed. Notice in, and I'm going to try to make the case systematically before we close. Notice in 1 Corinthians 5, 13a, the first part of it. Just notice those four words. Who judges those outside? God does. Who judges those outside? God does. So this, I'm catechizing you. Who judges those outside? God does. The implied antithesis is who judges those inside? We do. Who judges those inside? We do. Who judges those inside? We do. I'm not trying any way to be clever or coy. I just think that's the natural interpretation of biblical theology from this passage and others. And here's, here's one of the things I mean. I'm going to just, you don't have to turn, but I'm going to share a couple of different passages, some of which are in your bulletin and some of which are not. So take uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And then it says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. You see this difference between the insiders and the outsiders? At one time you were that, now you're not. So what does it say here? Don't become partners with them. Do you see the, the level of partnership that comes into those of us that have repented? This is, this is where, we, where we are. Look, I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin, there's that word judge again, judgment, to begin at the household of God. Well, what is that a metaphor for? We've learned already. The household of God, kind of like the body, the household, the flock. What is that a metaphor for? It's for the church, right? So you could insert church there and you wouldn't be doing any damage. It is time for the judgment to begin at the church, at the household of God, which in some way has already come, or he wouldn't speak of it in these terms. I think local church, membership. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if it begins with us, and that's our area, but God judges the outsiders, what will be of the outsiders? In other words, it is a glory and it is a grace for us to find judgment in the gospel for us, not just for conversion, but for all of our life patterns throughout the rest of our lives. It is a, it is a grace that we are judged like that together lovingly, and it is outside the church as well. It's also a testimony for those outside the church. What will become of those who do not obey the gospel? If judgment begins in the household of God in this way, what a great opportunity that those outside have to see the gospel, not just in word but in deed, and to respond to it. Friends, I am so afraid that we are nervous and bothered about things outside of our sphere of authority. 
We are nervous and bothered, and there are real reasons to lobby. And if your job is to lobby, or your job's a congressman, or your job's in government, there are real reasons to lobby for biblical truth to impact human flourishing through good legislation. I'm for that. But that's not where our domain of authority lies as a congregation. It lies in the membership right here. And to abdicate this responsibility while shouting all the time about that responsibility is a bait-and-switch job, and we shouldn't do that based on the authority of the Word of God. Judgment begins here, and it begins for the sake of us, of our little ones, of the wayward one, and I think for our corporate witness. Turn back to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And this is how we're going to end the service today, but I need it now, so I'm going to read it now. It's Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18 and 19. It says this, Jesus answered Peter, the apostle Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has, re- has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So his understanding of the gospel has been pre-wrought by God. In verse 18, he tells you, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm not, it doesn't say he's going to tear down the church, he's going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against us. As this implied judgment is moving from the inside for the good of God's people to minister to the outside, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And then the keys metaphor in verse 19. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Differently, I give you authority. I give you the keys. Church, here's the keys. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you say, well, how do you make the jump to the church? Well, first of all, it says there that he'll build his church, and the authority of the keys is linked to the church in chapter 18. Look over at Matthew chapter 18, and look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This, is a, this binding and loosing, this keys to the kingdom of heaven, this is language about authority, and it has been deferred, apparently, to the church. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. The whole context of that section is church together as a church and church Discipline and clarification of who's inside and outside the church and the love to clarify not just for us but for the outside world. And I think that that is in mind when the gospel writer of Matthew writes Matthew 28. So turn to Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. I think that's firmly in mind. I don't think the book was written and sort of packaged together later. I think it was written as a comprehensive whole. And in light of this, what we call the Great Commission, think about what I've read from Matthew 16 and 18. And think about the fact that I'm fairly firmly convinced that 1 Corinthians 5 assumes that the church has been reluctant to discipline this wayward brother. It assumes the steps of Matthew 18. Jesus promises to build his church. He defers this authority to the church upon his death, burial, and resurrection and the installation of the church. And he leaves a lot of the happenings of the church to the apostles after him to write up in the letters to the church. But this is Jesus' big statement after his resurrection to his apostles and to us. And this is what he says in Matthew 28, 18. This is what they call the, the Great Commission. Or some, Baptists, I'll say they call them, we're Great Commission Baptists. This is the commission. 
It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, I've, I've got all the authority on heaven and earth. I've got the keys. And here's what he says in verse 19. Go. And in your going, therefore, make not decisions, but disciples. Do you see that? It's not about easy believism. It's not about checking a box on a bulletin. This is about discipling. Go and make disciples of all nations. In case you missed it, it involves steps of baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in case we missed it, that it's disciples and not decisions, it involves teaching them to obey not just some of, but all that I have commanded you. We're supposed to teach them the whole counsel of the Word of God. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to bring them along in it. And there's to be a common covenant, I believe, in it, that we behave according to the clear teaching and application of the Word of God. And he says, finally, teaching them all that I've commanded you, behold, I am with you always. Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. And the intimation is, I'm with you as you do this that I have given you the authority to do. Well, what's he given us the authority to do? To be the church in this way. In our evangelism, how the whole church speaks of Jesus. Not just in word, but in deed. He's given us this authority to wield the keys. Not just in Matthew 20, but also in Matthew 18, how we do in here. It's why whenever we have new members class in the church, one of the things we tell them and we remind you of is that you are both to guard the gospel in the church membership and what it looks like and to proclaim the gospel rightly to outsiders out there that currently have no intent of affiliating with us. There needs to be a clear line between the inside and the outside so that the outside might make the volitional choice based on the regenerating work of the Spirit to, cut, to want to come in. And I think this is what's missed is we don't understand how unloving it is to present a false gospel of sexual immorality because we don't clearly define who's actually among us and who is not. For how could they ever want to be among us if it's very squishy about what it even means to be in or out of the local church? And I believe firmly that's what Matthew 28 is getting at in light of Matthew 18. What else would that authority mean? What else would a robust discipling, baptizing, teaching them to obey everything would it mean? And finally, finally, I'll say this. When I talk about the Great Commission, I think that the great omission is to read Matthew 28, not considering Matthew 18 and Matthew 16, like I read just a minute ago. Because when this starts to come together for us, what we see is that God has a plan for us, not just as individual Christians sharing the gospel, which is, is true, we do, but as a local church presenting the gospel to the world. And so this is the application I have for you from this textual but topical sermon about evangelism this week. I don't want to guilt you about whether or not how many times you've shared the gospel and how many decisions you've gotten in the last year, any of that. That's not, there'll be enough how-to stuff at the conference this weekend, and they won't be doing it based on works. They'll be doing it based on grace anyway because I'm aware of what they're going to do. But my application for you is this. Do you have sexual immorality that's harming the church's evangelism? Is your sexual immorality and your unwillingness to deal with it harming the church's evangelism? Because that's, in effect, saying to those outside, I'm more concerned with this than I am with you. Would you make a volitional choice this morning, a decision to repent of your sexual immorality, even the stuff that we don't know about? We might be able to help you. If you're caught in a quagmire of sexual immorality, of pornea, it's harming the church's witness whether you realize it or not. It's creating an apathy or a disconnect or busyness, and you, you, don't, you are not about evangelism, and we are not able to present that 
was just a barrier. Would you repent of your sin? It's a link that the Bible is making here. Furthermore, by way of application, would you pray about your involvement as a member of this church, seeking not just to consume, but to contribute by sharing the gospel? Would you be involved in the workings of the church, both to guard the gospel as members inside, but also to proclaim the gospel to those outside in deed and in word? Would you take that membership responsibility on afresh and anew? Would you be willing to take your membership more seriously because you see the link between it and evangelism? That's the second question. Finally, the third and the last question of the sermon application is this. If you are not inside the church's membership and you have not received the gospel and if the oath-bearing sign of the covenant of baptism you have not walked through and you are not a member in good standing with a local church somewhere, would you consider that here? Would you receive the gospel? Would you be washed by the blood of the Lamb? Would you receive the gospel? And would you then allow us to walk with you? through what it means to be obedient to that gospel all the days of your life until you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm asking you to come in. I could do it individually, but I'm doing it here from the pulpit, preaching this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm calling upon those of you that have been outsiders for too long. I'm calling upon you to come in through the gate of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the only way in. There's no other way in. Would you turn from your sins, and would you believe on him for salvation? And... Uh, May God help us in this as we seek to apply these scriptures by the Spirit of God rightly. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, help us to understand what it means to be a part of your household. Help us to understand what it means to judge without being judgmental. To love without leaving truth aside. Help us to know, Lord, how to abandon every shred of pride in this and how to walk humbly with you all the days of our life and help us, Lord, to be welcoming of those coming back to the fold as well as those coming for the very first time into the fold. We need your help to get this to where it needs to be. We need your help to be the church visible sharing the gospel visibly with our area code and in our area. We need you really badly to help us with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While you meditate on these scriptures this morning, I'm going to ask our ushers to come to collect our morning tear-offs and offerings.